Well, obviously with the, uh, the football week, and I know some of you don't care, but it got me thinking just about competition in general, whether it's football or sports or even just your gaming club or whatever it is that you do. There's, there's, there's some really positive things about competition. Competition, for example, can, can help us achieve our goals. It can give us something to work toward. It can be that thing that causes us to maybe work out or to challenge our minds or our skill set or whatever it is. But of course, competition can have its bad side too. I, I, I remember when Corey and I were first together, we used to play that game Spoons, and we may have upped it to steak knives one night because we were getting a little too cocky. But um, it, like most things in life, competition can cause some of the uglier traits inside of us to come out. Uh, fans calling each other names or tearing down the character of opposing players or opposing teams. Uh, and I know a lot of us participate still uh, even even as adults in competitive activities whether it's sports or you know you, maybe you're in a, a gaming club or you just like playing board games a lot or uh, who knows friendly betting or whatever it is there's competition in work there's competition in all kinds of places in life Corey and i for example play on a co-ed over 30 soccer league right so yeah it's uh, it's recreational no none of us are going to get call, calls up from the sounders right unless i lose about 30 times but um yeah, that's the only thing. Thank you, Eric. Yeah. <laughs> only the separating me from the Sounders. Yeah. Uh, I think they have a guy on the roster older than me. Is that Hanneman? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the only thing. Um, but from time to time, even in co-ed over 30 soccer on Monday nights, it gets a little aggressive, a little competitive. And what's funny is on my team, you know, there's, there's a pastor on the soccer team, right? And a dental hygienist. And there's a, there's a medical doctor. There's an engineer. There's a couple people that work at the refinery, a construction business owner, uh, all kinds of people. And, and a lot of people have kids. And so, I mean, these are like grownups, right? But you get out on the field and it's like sometimes people forget that their kids are watching on the sideline and they're like getting in the ref's face because it's a big deal. It's like the championship game. No. And, and I remember one time there's this guy who was really wanted to fight this guy from the other team. Like, really? Like, you got kicked in soccer. That happens. Like, just relax. And, and I kind of had to talk him down. Like, okay, think about this from perspective. You have to go to work tomorrow. Like, do you really want to go home and explain to your wife and kids why your nose is broken or worse yet, why you're in jail? Like, it's just not worth it, right? But sometimes the, the competition takes over and it's like, okay, so the situation is diffused. We have to frame sometimes those situations in the heat of the moment, frame them with reality to bring in perspective. Sometimes it's just not worth it, right? In the church in the early 50s of the first century AD, the Apostle Paul heard a report that a church he had planted a year and a half, two years earlier was had some divisions in it, and they were fighting competitively with each other. Not only were they fighting with each other, but they were fighting against Paul. They were challenging his message, and his message was the message of the gospel of Jesus. I'm sure that Paul was tempted to justify himself, to bring the hammer down on the instigators of this trouble. But with great wisdom, before Paul gives any commands or gives any advice or brings any kind of hammer down, with great patience, he writes them, he frames the argument, the letter we call 1 Corinthians, the first nine verses. These Corinthians were notorious for petty divisions, for loose morals. They were easy pickings for a good lecture on moral and, and ethics, right? But instead, Paul frames his discussion by focusing first on who these people really are in Christ. 
That's what he begins with. He says that the Corinthian church is the church of God, made holy by Jesus, that these Corinthians are saints in Christ, which means they are the new people of God, that they are part of the worldwide church, not just their own little thing, but they're part of all the other churches of Christ. They are gifted by the Holy Spirit, and these gifts that they have by the Holy Spirit, Paul affirms in them, says, by the fact that you have the gifts of the Spirit, it affirms and confirms the reality that you have received the gospel. Paul declares that because of God's faithfulness, these Corinthians in the church would be counted as blameless on the day of judgment. And on top of all of that affirmation, Paul then blesses them with grace, the unearned favor of God, and peace, God's shalom, the fullness of God's peace. And he declares that he is thankful to God for them. There it is, Corinthians that is the reality of your identity. Now, with that foundation in place, let's talk about some of the remodeling that needs to happen to this house of God. Stand with me as we read this next section. This is uh, 1 Corinthians 1, verses 10 through 17. Paul has just laid this foundation of who the church really is, and then he says, Now, I exhort you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I've been informed concerning you, my brothers and sisters, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now, I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I'm a Paul and I'm of Apollos, and I'm of Cephas, and I'm of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized into the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you, well, except for Crispus and Gaius, so that none of you would, were, were baptized in my name. Well, now, I did baptize also the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized any other for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, the driving verse of verses 10 through 17 is Paul's encouragement, his exhortation, that in the name of Jesus, this church in Corinth rise above their divisions and come together in unity. Two questions immediately arise for me out of that exhortation for unity. One, united on what? Like anything? Be united as in uniform in every single way? Dress the same, think the same, like the same chariot riders in the arena? United on every opinion? Politics? What's the best new poem out there? The best new song? Best new artist? This is an important question, and it's one that we're going to have to come back to after we answer the second question, which is, why? What reason is Paul writing 
to them about unity? Why is he writing to them about being united at all in the first place? Well, verse 11, of course, tells us that Chloe's people reported to Paul that there's quarrels among these Corinthian Christians. We, we don't know for sure who Chloe was, but scholars think that she was a woman, well, we know she's a woman, <laughs> uh, that she was a woman probably from Asia Minor, okay, by her name, and she's probably uh, a businesswoman who's traveling back and forth between towns. She could even be from Ephesus, which is the town in modern-day Turkey where Paul is writing the letter to the Corinthians. And some believe that she was probably on business, visiting Corinth, because that was a hot trade area, selling whatever she was selling, buying whatever she was buying. And she pops in on the church, realizes what's going on, and comes back and tells Paul what's going on. We don't really know who she is, but here are two important things. One, by the fact that her like surname and who she's connected to isn't mentioned, it's actually a mark of authenticity for the New Testament. Chloe was so well known by the Corinthians that he didn't have to explain who she was. Of course, oh, Chloe, we know her. Uh, she's given us this report. And the report was that the Corinthians were divided and devouring each other with their arguments. That's the important piece, the message that she brings. Quarrels in church. It's, uh, you know, sometimes... You read these English translations, and this is a real head-scratcher for me, why they picked the word quarrel. NIV has quarrel, New American Standard has quarrel, I think NRSV has quarrel. Eugene Peterson in the message comes closer when he says there's fighting in the church. But the actual Greek word is eris. Say eris. It's like Eric with an S at the end. Eris. Right? Eris. Kenneth Bailey, who is a, uh, a New Testament scholar, makes the connection that the word eris comes right out of the Greek pantheon of gods and goddesses and Eris was actually the sister of Ares right who's the the Greek god of war and Eris is known for the goddess who excites people to war it's like she loves to give her brother things to do so she goes in and she stirs up division among communities that's at least what the Greeks believed in their mythology so Chloe's report to Paul is that these Corinthian Christians were stirring the pot they weren't just uh, neutral about something and then had a, had a little disagreement, that they're actually picking at each other and stirring things up and instigating one another. They're actively engaged in fighting each other. Basically, they're doing the opposite of trying to work for peace and unity. So what are these guys fighting about? But in order to get our minds around what they're really fighting about, what was happening, we're going to have to try and best we can in uh, 21st century Bellingham, get in the shoes of a Corinthian in the mid-50s AD. All right, so go with me here back in time. In simplistic terms, it had to do with celebrity. So think for a moment, who are the celebrity type people in our culture? Name, name, not, maybe not even individuals, you can do that if you want, but what types of people are celebrities? Just yell them out. Sports stars. Politicians, actors I heard. Megachurch pastors, okay? <laughs> yeah, in the Midwest. <laughs> yes. Anything else? Singers? I mean, so there's, there's certain types of people that we would associate with celebrity. Uh, in fact, someone said sports stars. Think um, uh, Jess over here. Last year after the Seahawks won the Super Bowl, what were there? Like 700 plus thousand people that filled the streets of Seattle? And what for? Uh, for when the floats came down the road with player, these athletes on them, 
and the people are just, you know, singing their praises and trying to get close enough to see Marshawn Lynch. One guy gave him a bottle of, like, cinnamon schnapps or something like that. I don't know. But uh, it, it's a big deal. These are celebrities. And now what if I were to tell you, take, take what you know about celebrity in our culture, what if I were to tell you that the equivalent of celebrity in the 50s A.D. in Corinth were the equivalent of what we would have in, in the debate club. So Ryan Wasserman. Yeah. Debate club dudes were the bomb. They were the celebrities in Corinth. Let me, let me just give you a little history on that, because uh, I know that sounds funny. So starting f- several centuries, actually, before this letter was written, there arose a group of people called the sophists. Sophists. Not, kind of like my daughter. Uh, because the root word for sophist is the Greek sophia, which means wisdom. Originally, these sophists came out of Greek philosophy. So they were in the school of philosophy, uh, hanging around with the great ones, and these sophists were experts at argument, at uh, oration, at speaking. They're public speakers. Uh, And they started off as being really good at speaking about important things, philosophical truths and principles. But as often happens in academic circles, there are hard-working scholars who do their work with integrity, who publish articles after painstaking research and work, have it peer-reviewed, and then, you know, maybe the elite people read those, right? And then there are those who kind of cut corners and, hey, I want to make money, so I will put out, um, uh, you know, pop, pulp fiction type stuff. So in my own field of interest, biblical studies, I wish more people out there read N.T. Wright and Ian Proven, and Richard Bauckham, and Dale Bruner, and I could go on and on. But if you look at what's getting sold in most popular bookstores, if you go to Barnes & Noble, for example, uh, Da Vinci Code would sell, way outsell these, these hardworking scholars. Uh, or books by Karen Armstrong that are filled with misrepresented data and inconsistencies are touted as like the big thing in biblical studies. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm not going to name any more names, but there's these horrible books out there that, uh, you know, so what happened was many of the sophists in Corinth by Paul's day were more known for their show than for their substance. And these sophists, they had several forms of employment. Some worked for local government uh, as delegates or representatives, so uh, the government of Corinth could hire a team of sophists, and they would go to Rome to present the case that why Corinth should get better streets, or get a tax break, or, or, or whatever it is, or why the emperor should come visit Corinth. Uh, some of these sophists were uh, employed uh, for politicians who would give their speeches. Some of them would even be politicians. Others were lawyers, and still others were more like like actors or performers who would go to the, um, to the Colosseum, uh, or to the amphitheater, rather, and just wax eloquent about a poet or about a topic of their own choosing. And some were so good that they would stand there and the audience could choose a topic, and they would just go for it. Now, what's interesting in our discussion is that many of these sophists also had schools or academies. And you know what they called their students, right? Disciples. Disciples. In fact, that word disciple in the Greek is centuries older than Jesus and the 12 disciples. That language is probably borrowed. The sophists started these things. The Greek philosophers also had disciples. Now, to be a disciple of a popular sophist, uh, a sophist was very expensive. So the elite boys in the town, the elite families would try and get their sons into the popular sophist schools. 
Being a disciple of a sophist was not just a part-time commitment, like you go to school 8 to 3, something like that, uh, have your sports afterwards. It was all-encompassing. People would train their bodies because part of sophist etiquette was to have like a really good-looking body. Uh, people would pull the hair off of their bodies and oil themselves up and all that kind of, we'll get into more of that next week, trust me. Uh, <laughs> um, the, but you would literally follow your master around. And some of these disciples would learn to walk like their sophist. They would learn the same mannerisms, gestures, speech patterns, all of this kind of thing. They absolutely copied them. And they demanded 100% allegiance, 100% loyalty. Now, among these, so let, let, let's say we're in Corinth right now. This is our Corinthian situation, and uh, Joe is a famous sophist, and this is his school right here. Everyone behind Joe is in his school, and uh, Steve is a famous, I can tell you can just stand up and give a speech Steve. So Steve is a famous sophist, and everyone behind Steve is in his school. Now, what would happen is this intense rivalry. And there's a guy named Dio Chrysostom who was banished from Rome for all these kind of reasons. And he came to Corinth and writes about how shady the sophists were in Corinth. And he says, there's one time where, uh, and Br this is all from uh, Bruce Winter. He's a scholar. This is not stuff I looked up on my own. So he, he comes into town and says, uh, so I'm watching this thing. And Joe the sophist is, uh, got his students and two of Steve's disciples fallen behind. And every time Joe makes a slip of the tongue or makes a grammatical error in his speech, they heckle him. Do you like when we have heckling? Remember when Adrian Beltre was really bad on the Mariners? I, I sat on the third base side, and like all these people are heckling their own guy. Anyway, where did that come from? But anyway, so, <laughs> so these guys are heckling Joe. And what happened is these disciples get so offended because they, want, they, they love their guy. They're fully allegiance. They beat the two hecklers up. And Dio Chrysostom says that they beat them so severely, one of them died. Okay? So this intense rivalry between these teachers and their disciples and other teachers and other disciples. It's hard for us to imagine that. But it is what it is. That's the way it was in Corinth. Now, why is that so important? Because it adds depth and dimension to the accusation that there was quarreling in the Corinthian church between people who favored Paul's teaching or the teaching of Apollos or the teaching of Cephas, who's Peter, or even the teaching of Jesus. Nowhere, by the way, in any of Paul's letter or anywhere uh, in the rest of the Bible is there any indication that Paul had an issue with Apollos or that Paul had an issue with Jesus, or that Paul had a lasting issue with Peter. P Paul and Peter had some differences, and Paul writes about them, and then they cleared it up as brothers in Christ. What seems to be happening is that the Corinthians, who were used to this hyper-competitive disciple-master relationship, were becoming possessive of Paul, possessive of Apollos, possessive of the teachings of Peter, possessive somehow of Christ. And they were stirring up trouble with each other. Now, how could that play out in the church today? How is that even relevant? Being in the Northwest, uh, the church is a minority for sure, especially in our area. I, I have to, I've had to explain uh, at least a dozen times, I, and that was just off the top of my head last Thursday when I was writing this stuff down, at least a dozen times in our community in the last five or six years what a pastor is. Like, as we meet, you know, 
parents of our kids, you know, on soccer and stuff like that. Oh, wh- wh- what's a pat? What, what do you, what do you do? Uh, maybe you think, what do you do? But anyway, I'll, I could help explain that to you. Um, <laughs> actually, I don't know. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But, I, but, had, but really, I had to explain. When Corey and I were traveling in Europe, um, in Italy, 10, 11 years ago now, it was even more prevalent there. Like, I've never met a minister before. Never met a minister. Never stepped foot in a church. Uh, one of you, uh, I think maybe Dan and Shannon, uh, you guys le- lost a debit card here one time. So after school, Corey took Sophia. She was having a play date with a friend. And so they were looking for the debit card. And this friend said, I've never been in a church before. Nine years old, right? So I mean, this, this is how it is here, right? Um, but in the Midwest, church is a big deal. Uh, the question is, do you go, is not, do you go to church, but which church do you go to? Oh, is that the one with Pastor Blankety Blank? Oh, I heard he just put a new book out. Cool, cool. I go to church awesome, where everything is awesome. We have an awesome new video venue where the pastor is awesomely broadcasted in 37 awesome languages. Now, we may not come from that type of culture here in Bellingham, but if we aren't careful, there can be a kind of pride that seeps in uh, to our local church identity as well. We all want to root for the winning team. It's amazing. I have to just confess, like, how my emotions were today. How st- I, I feel really stupid that on my way to church, I was like, Seahawks lost. I really felt bad. Like, I was, like, having to work my way up. Like, i got to be the one that tells people Jesus is more important than the Seahawks. <laughs> and then I get here, and I'm literally doing, like, heel clicks on this stage as Charles were all watching in his iPhone. Like, we want to be part of, like, the winning group. So, uh, you know, we go to a church for a reason, and we want to, like, we want to think that it's better or has some things that other ones don't. And not that you want a bad pastor. I hope not, because that's why you're here. Sorry. But we need to be careful that we're not pledging our allegiance to a specific pastor or leadership group. The pastor, in fact, ought to ever be pointing people to the word of God, which points to Jesus. We can get competitive about which branch of the church we're part of. And we take this from a, a, a macro view, uh, the orthodox or the Roman Catholics, or the 50,000-plus denominations in Protestantism. We, we can get possessive about that. We can think that we're superior uh, to those other groups. Uh, and let me just say this. Of course you should choose a church for a reason. In general, I think we should feel that we've made an informed decision, and that while our church isn't perfect, we have our reasons for being part of the church that we belong to. But we have to remember that first we belong to Jesus, and then we belong to the church worldwide, and then we belong to a local congregation. This quarreling can play out in snobbery over how we do church. I think the attractional model is best. The pastor should definitely dress like Jimmy Fallon and have a faux hawk, and the music should be like pop music but with Christian words. After all, Paul was all things to all people. Well, I used to go to a church like that, but I wasn't being fed. Our church, our pastor preaches the word, as if the other churches don't. And, and then, well, I used to go to a church where uh, all they did was feed you the word, but now I've matured, and my church actually does stuff. So we live the word. And of course, we're so busy living the word, we hardly ever read it anymore. But There are those who are sick of the formal setting and just want to be relational. Jesus was relational. So we're just going get, to get together and eat and offer our interpretations of the Bible. Or those who think church is too relaxed. Well, we need to dress more nicely and children should be seen and not heard. 
And you see how this could go, right? Every one of us has a tendency to want our thing, our way, to be the way, the best way. We want our brand or our style or our pastor or our church or our mission statement or purpose statement to be the best. Our our Bible study on Wednesday night, Collins reminded me of a cartoon that I often show at the uh, partnership class. Ian's going to put it up there. So you've got church history class here, right? And you've got 1 AD and all of the beginnings of the church and these bazillion things. And finally, so this is where our movement came along and finally got the Bible right. Jesus is so lucky to have us. That's not what we're about, right? That's not what we're trying to do. Thanks, Ian. Let's go back to verse 10 for a minute. Paul calls the people in the name of Jesus to do away with their divisions, to be made one, one in mind and one in purpose. In fact, this idea of being knit together comes maybe from his tent-making background. He's a tent maker, and back then you didn't just get sheets of nylon and like cool Gore-Tex and materials like that. There's no mountain hardware. You had sheets of leather, and they came in all kinds of sizes because animals come in all sizes of sizes, right? And you had to stitch it up with these funky shapes. And it's the same word of putting those pieces of leather together, as he says here, be built into one. Right? Be, be one. You're not all going to be uniform. You're not all going to look the same. You're not even going to have a, all the same shades. But when we're stitched together in unity, that's the only way that we keep the water out on our functioning tent. So Paul is not, definitely not saying there should be no differences in church. He's not against diversity. In fact, he glories in the fact that Jesus is the only thing in the world that could possibly pull together Jews and Gentiles and men and women and people of all ethnicities and social standing and all types of people. Jesus is the only one that can do that well. And he's not saying, hey, anything goes. Believe whatever you want as long as you get along. He's not saying that all ways of doing church are equal, nor is he saying that all pastors and teachers and leaders are the same. And throughout his writings, he urges us, use your mind as well as your hearts to discern between right and wrong and good and evil. And later on in this very letter, he's going to get on their case for allowing blatant evil to take place in their congregation. So Paul is not anything goes, unity uh, at all costs. But what Paul is saying is that these frivolous divisions, this infighting, has to stop. You see, the main thing for Paul, and Gordon Fee has helped me to see this in his writings, the main thing for Paul is uh, is not the divisions. The divisions he's talking about are symptoms of a bigger issue. And that issue is where we place our allegiance. Some are arguing that they follow Apollos. Some say they follow Paul, and we're even bragging, most likely, that they were baptized by the great apostle himself. Others were pledging allegiance to Cephas, to Peter, who was one of the closest people in Jesus' life. And still others were saying, well, you guys are quarreling about these human leaders. We're the only ones who really follow Jesus. And we all know some movements out there that claim that. How arrogant and misguided, Paul says. Was Christ divided up? Is he just one leader among many? As if you could possibly say we're of Christ and we're of Apollos and we're of Paul and we're of Peter. As if we're even in the same universe. 
Are you saying Jesus is just your little cult hero? Are you claiming me as your hero? Was I crucified for you? Were you ever baptized into Paul's name? I hardly even baptized any of you. And in the end, it doesn't matter who did the baptizing. What matters is the name in which you were baptized. You were baptized into Jesus' name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Your allegiance, Corinthians, is misplaced. If you're putting your faith, your loyalty in Paul or in Peter or in in Apollos, or if you are claiming Christ is only yours and no one else's, then it saddens me because you're not living into the fullness of the gospel. You see, this is not a matter for Paul of salvation, of them losing their salvation. Paul has already established in those foundational verses, verses 1 through 9, that that these Corinthians are secure, that they, in the day of judgment, will be seen as blameless before God. He's not talking about, get your good deeds in line and, and then you'll be okay. What, he, what he's talking about is his sadness that they are not living into the fullness of life that Christ died to give them. See, Paul knew firsthand what it was to believe his group was superior to other people. He was a hotshot rabbi who himself declares he was blameless in following the law. And you know when he says that, right? He doesn't mean he never sinned. You could be blameless in following the law if you upheld the law, and when you broke it, you atoned for your sin in the temple. You understand that, right? So Paul could be blameless and still be a sinner. That's, that's common Judaism. But he was blameless in the law. He was well-educated. He couldn't stand it when this upstart Christian movement began claiming that this nobody Jesus from Nazareth was the Messiah who died and then rose again. And he not only preached against the Christians, he hunted them down and brought them to trial, to be persecuted and beaten. But all that changed, you know this, right? When he was on the road, Jerusalem to Damascus and Syria, and on that road, the risen and reigning Jesus encountered Paul, revealed himself to him. And from that moment on, Paul's heart absolutely melted, absolutely changed. And Paul realized, when Jesus said, Paul, or Saul back then, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Paul understood at that point that the church is not just a group of little groups of people who get together to sing songs and take communion together. That the church and all its local expressions together is the body of Christ himself. That's why Jesus says, why are you persecuting me when he was thinking he was just persecuting Christians? See, when Jesus got a hold of Paul, when he revealed himself, Paul's heart completely changed. He grew in love and graciousness and wisdom. He was a new man from the inside out. And that's the effect that Jesus has on people. It's what happened to the 12 disciples, a group of men, by the way, who had no business being in community together. You've got Matthew, who's a tax collector, who was in bed with the enemy, and Simon, who's a zealot. The zealots were a a radical political movement. Think of, we would call them insurgents or something like that today. And they hated the Roman overrule. They hated tax collectors. Simon the zealot, on a bad day, would have killed a person like Matthew if he could have gotten away with it. 
You know, you've got a group of fishermen who are men's men. They don't care about all this stuff. They just go to work like their fathers before them and their grandfathers before them. Blue-collar men trying to scratch out a living. Probably listen to country. There was one guy who some scholars think was, had Gentile origin. Maybe one parent was Gentile. So you've got this group of people who, they wouldn't be hanging out together if it weren't for Christ having absolutely fundamentally changed their hearts. And all of a sudden, their allegiance to Jesus trumps their profession and their family and their ethnicity and their politics. It's all about Jesus. And the same is true for Zacchaeus and Mary Magdalene and Nicodemus and the woman at the well and James, the brother of Jesus, who went with his mom and tried to take Jesus into custody in Mark chapter 3 because Jesus was acting crazy. And after he rose from the dead, something happened in James, who then became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. That's the way it is. When you meet Jesus, you are never the same. Your allegiances shift. And the Corinthians, see, the reason why Paul is wasting his time, I don't think he's wasting it, investing his time, is because they had forgotten their first love. They had placed their allegiance in the messengers of the gospel rather than the person of the gospel, who is Jesus himself. Let me ask you this. Do you remember what it was like when Jesus first revealed himself to you? Remember what it was like when you realized that all the things you thought were so important in life, all the things you used to get worried about, ceased to be as important as you thought they were, or those things that were so important for worldly reasons were baptized and then gained new meaning, better meaning, worthy meaning. Do you remember? that first freedom and joy of surrender to the grace and love and hope of Jesus. It's not a coincidence that the Bible over and over again calls us to remember. Do you remember? I ask you, brothers and sisters, this is something I'm going through too. Let's consider our allegiances. What are we really devoted to in do our allegiances, the things that we know really matter to us, do they line up with what you believe you believe? And if you are experiencing Jesus and his presence for the first time, if your heart right now is on fire inside of your chest, then let this be the first day of your new life in Christ. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, I, I give you praise for your servant Paul, for his patience, for his ability to get to the heart and the root of the issue. Lord, thank you that he was able to love the people that you loved so much. He was able to rise above the fray, to not take it all personal, but to help them remember their first love, their first allegiance. And I pray, Lord, as we have peeked in like, like voyeurs, like time travelers into this scene in Corinth so long ago, I, I pray that you would help us to uh, uh, consider our allegiances. And Lord, that you would forgive us where we have 
We have gone off after the things of the world where we have confessed you with our lips, but our hearts are far from you. And I, I thank you for your ministry, Holy Spirit, reminding us of the teachings of Jesus, giving us faith, of, of giving us grace to come back. Holy Spirit, help us to love the Lord like you love the Lord. Help us to love the Father like you love the Father. Thank you for your sacrificial ministry of always exalting the Father and the Son. Bless you too, Holy Spirit. Do your work in us, we pray.